in asking his people to be obedient to every, every authority instituted by man, God is placing some in a very hard position. Why? Because God allows some men to act and do according to their own wants and desires, which originate in their hard hearts and show absolutely no consideration whatsoever for anyone else. Peter made it clear in his teaching on submission. You as a believer must see others as better than yourself. The golden rule becomes the prime directive for living the Christian life. Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. If all men followed this rule, then man would never be responsible for inflicting suffering on others. But let us be realistic. We live in a world with evil throughout, and man's nature is concerned only, only with self. Peter addresses some who would be more susceptible to evil than others. He spoke to slaves who would be, could be serving evil masters. He spoke to wives who could be married to wicked husbands. What was his command to them? He told them to be the best slave, to be the best wife they could be. Why? Because throughout their witness, their master or husband might be led to Jesus Christ. He also spoke to husbands and others in authority. He told them how important it was that they be witnesses of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ in all their dealings with those under their authority. Be kind. Help these people to see Christ through your actions. In this next section, 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17, Peter comes to address the inevitable question, especially the question slaves and wives might have after hearing his command to them to be in submission. Peter, do you mean that I'm to stay under a master who is cruel and mean or under a husband who ignores my basic needs? Peter's answer seems hard to us. We have been privileged to live under a Christian system that has put a stop to slavery, a Christian system that has freed women from the tyranny of oppression by ignorance. Peter's answer is yes. Stay with them. You could, should say where God has placed you and minister to those who are around you. And yes, that means even when they aren't listening and when they are cruel and hard. I don't think he could ask anything harder of you. What this calls for is a dying to self and a willingness to live for Jesus Christ. When you make this type of commitment, you open yourself up to the hate of a world that cannot stand the thought of following the God that created them. It will not be an easy life in one sense because it will place you in opposition to those around you. The almost, this almost seems to mediate against Peter's admonition in verse 8 to live at peace with all men. The peace he calls you to live in is the peace that comes from God. It is living in harmony with the truth of God's word. The essence of it is to never do to others 
what you would not want them to do to you. Which says, if you want to live in true peace, you have to live in the example given you by Jesus Christ. If you live this way, you're going to come face to face with some very difficult situations. You're going to find yourself enslaved to someone who is not a true believer. You may be married to someone who hates God. You could be in authority over someone who detests God's ways. They are going to do everything they can to make your life miserable. In view of that, Peter gives us this doctrine of suffering. Let's consider the first part of this doctrine. First, he says, be encouraged even when facing such suffering. Second, he says, be confident of the one you love. And last, he calls you to be assured of God's watch care. Peter goes back to a subject he has already opened in 1 Peter 2.12 when he said, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. The whole point of this exhortation on submission has been undergirded with this idea of being a witness for Jesus Christ. Your responsibility as a believer is to live your life in such a way as to bring glory and honor to the one you follow. Once you begin to live in this way, then you will come face to face with another truth. Those who serve God will face hard times, times of persecution and suffering. Peter understands very well that God does not shield his people from external causes or sufferings. Yes, he does stand with them in their suffering. His grace is always sufficient to bring them through it. He also always supports them in the good they're called to do, regardless of the circumstances they face. Verse 13 and 14. And who is he who will harm you if you, follow, if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Now this begins with a rhetorical question, and Peter doesn't expect an answer. He asks, who will harm you? Paul asked us a similar question in Romans 8.31. Of course, if God is for us, who can be against us? Of course, the answer is no one. It is important that you understand and believe God has not deserted his children in times of trouble. Yes, the person who is trying to harm you is evil, and he may very well do you bodily harm. That doesn't mean God is asleep. That doesn't mean he's away on vacation. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You are here. You're here to represent Jesus Christ. You're here to represent what they did to him and they will also do to you. God allowed Jesus to be tormented. He allowed him to be killed here on this earth. He then raised him from the grave and gave him a place in heaven. He will also allow you to be tormented and maybe even killed. He will deliver you from death and give you a place in heaven if you remain faithful in following Jesus Christ. Peter wants you to understand 
when you suffer physically and mentally for Christ's sake, you cannot lose. You cannot, you will not lose. Why? Because God will not forsake you. He will never forsake his children no matter what happens. He said in 1 Peter 2, 20 and 21, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God, for to this you were called. You were called. Called to witness for Christ. To face suffering because he faced suffering. Peter's question in verse 13 has an addendum to it. And who is he who will harm you if you become a follower of what is good? I think Peter's meaning should be clear. If you do evil and someone comes after you for it and harms you, then you have no one to blame but yourself, do you? You caused it. But if they seek you out and they harm you because you are being obedient to God's word, because you're doing the good things you were called to do, then you can know that God is standing with you and the harm they intend for you will in the end be made to bring glory to God and good to the one who loves Jesus Christ. This is pictured for you in Genesis chapters 37 through 50 through the life of Joseph. You remember Joseph? Uh, his brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. Joseph was sold to an Egyptian and, and he worked for that Egyptian and he did a good job, but the wife told a lie about him and got him thrown into prison. He stayed in that prison for a long time. He was only released when he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. He was then made second in command of all of Egypt. His brothers came to Egypt to buy grain and they had to come before Joseph. Joseph recognized them, they didn't recognize him. Later, he brought his whole family to Egypt. The brothers were afraid Joseph was going to harm them at the death of their father. In Genesis 50, chapter, verse, chapter 20, verse, chapter 50, verse 20, I'll get there in a minute. Joseph told them he forgave them because while they meant what they did for evil, God meant it for good. Peter, in verse 13, is using the Greek word mimetes. Mimetes translated in the NIV is translated as eager. In the New King James it's translated as follower. It could also be translated imitator or zealot. The word zealot had a great political meaning during the early Christian era. There was a group of people in Israel called zealots because they attacked the Romans with great zeal in an effort to remove them from Judea. This was not Peter's idea. He is not calling anyone to resist Rome's authority. He is calling you to be zealous in doing good works. He is calling you to imitate Jesus Christ, to follow him, to be eager to do the good works prepared for you to do. He adds, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. Please understand. Not everyone is going to suffer horrible things because they follow Jesus Christ. We live in a nation that gives us freedom to worship without the threat of persecution. Our sufferings are very light. Blessed are those 
who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus told us that himself in Matthew 5.10. Peter says, if you suffer for doing right, this is in reference to a characteristic of God. God is righteous. Verse 18, Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteousness for the unrighteous. Therefore, if a believer suffers from doing right, you're imitating Jesus, you're being zealous for what is right and suffering for the sake of righteousness. And when you do that, God promises. He promises to pour out his blessings upon you. Peter adds this great word, these great words of encouragement. In New King James, verse 14, it reads, And do not be afraid of their threats nor troubled. The NIV says, Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. Now, you need to recognize this is a loose quote from Isaiah 8, verses 12 through 13. Simon Kistemaker says, Is this speaking about an object or a subject of fear? Objective being something from outside of ourselves and subjective in this case being something from within our own hearts. The NIV has taken this into subjective. Do not fear what the pagans fear. Mr. Kistemaker finds it is better taken objectively as the New King James does. Do not fear your persecutors. Remember, God's word from John 14.1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. And in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. We're not to fear men. Who are we to fear? We're to fear God. Our subjective fear is our distress at not pleasing God. Our objective fear is God's judgment. Man can never harm us eternally. Thus, we need not fear men. Yes, you may kill the body, but never the spirit. Christ made this clear in Matthew 10, 28, when he said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The encouragement is that men may hurt the body, but they can never seriously harm the believer's soul in whom Jesus Christ lives. Fear man. Fear man knows no place in the heart of a believer. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. It is Christ who comes to live in your heart. And he is ever ready and willing to stand with you And be your defense against any and all suffering that comes to you because of your love for him. If you find encouragement from Christ living in your heart, then you will also find confidence. Verses 15 and 16. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear having a good conscience, but when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. He says, sanctify the Lord. 
When God gave you a new heart, Christ came into that heart, and you, as a new believer, have to set him apart, sanctify him. You must consecrate him in your heart. This is your responsibility given to every person generated by God's grace. Why is it in the heart? Well, Psalms 4.23 says the heart is the wellspring of life. It's where it all begins. When the Holy Spirit has come into the heart, he takes control of that heart, causing the believer to commit his whole life to following Jesus Christ. It is only after this that the Christian is able to defend himself against the attacks of the evil one because he has been given the shield of faith. He has been outfitted with the armor of God. He's free from subjective fears. From objective fears, the world might manifest against him. You don't have to fear men. You don't have to fear their evil works. Why are you free from such fear? Because you have made Christ your Lord. Herein is a very, very important point. Without Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, you will never know him as the Savior of your soul. The true believer is one who knows he is a sinner and has need of a Savior and recognizes Jesus Christ as the only possible Savior. There's no way to be saved apart from Jesus Christ. You must come believing and trusting in him and in him alone. This is not simply a one-time event, a single moment in your life in which you must believe this. It is an ongoing trust. Salvation is a process. It is the process of acknowledging your weakness and failure and accepting God's offer of grace and mercy through life and work done by Jesus Christ. Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? There is no other way to come to Christ than to place your hope in him and in him alone. For the believer, there's no option. Christ has to be both his Savior and his Lord. Peter adds to this that you must always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. Please note, Peter does not say to go out and beat people over the head with the gospel, but to be prepared to give an answer for the hope you have. This indicates the best way to present the gospel is through a godly life. We understand that along with such a life, there must be ability and willingness to speak when opportunity comes. It's important to remember that discretion is needed in witnessing. Christ told us in Matthew 7, 6, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. The only way, the only way you can be ready to carry out this command is to know God's word and have Christ as the Lord of your life. When Christ is the Lord of your life, then and only then can you follow what Peter says about your witnessing. But do this with meekness and fear. Only the person who is confident in what he knows, only the person that is fully convinced of the hope in his heart, he only can be quiet and wait for the opportunity to come. If I could get you to understand one thing, one thing, it would be that salvation is not earned, it is not purchased, but is a gift of God. You cannot argue anyone into the kingdom of God. You cannot buy anyone's attention to hear the gospel. 
You cannot force anyone to believe the truth. Muslims believe you can force people to accept their religion. Christianity does not believe that. It believes that you can come to Jesus Christ only as the Father draws you, and you can come to the Father only as Christ calls. This work of salvation is God's work, not yours. You are here to act only as God's instrument, and you must be prepared and ready at all times. Peter gives you the proper way to do that. He says you do it by having a sound conscience, a good conscience. People who have a clear conscience are not easily provoked as those who have a guilty conscience. It is much easier to be ready to deliver that which you know and understand is your own hope. Therefore, you must continually be in God's word and in prayer. You must daily examine your own heart and lining it up with God's word. You must be continually reminding yourself that Jesus Christ has saved me from my sin and has become the Lord of my life. When you're doing this, then your confidence is very high and the reason for your hope is ever before you. Peter says this is, this is necessary. That when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. The way those who hate you are going to be turned around is by your good behavior. Remember, Peter told wives married to unbelievers to stay with them, to live a godly life before them, that it might make them see their sin and their need of Christ as their Savior. The same thing is true with each one of you. You are called to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The more you witness with your life, the more confidence you will have to witness with your mouth as the opportunity is presented. You can have confidence in this. The more those who hate God attack you, the more confidence you can have. Why? Because the truth of God will in the end triumph. As you, a believer in Jesus Christ, live a blameless life, those around you, those who are not believers, will be put to shame by their own actions and words. Christ will not allow his truth to be mocked with any success. Your good work will be his witness and will show the condemnation of all who refuse to make him Lord of their lives. Nobody. Nobody ever asked why people like Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin have to suffer in hell. Or why people like Osama bin Laden or Timothy May have to suffer the wrath of God against them. That's because everyone knows that evil must be punished. The scriptures say very clearly in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It teaches without a doubt that there is a hell and a place is reserved there for everyone who remains in his sin and does not receive God's mercy. But what about those who think of, a, of as good, or at least those who are committed to Christ Jesus? Why do they have to suffer? Peter says in verse 17, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 
If you suffer because you do good, be assured it is God's will that you do so. The believer who suffers because of his good works should be assured that God is in control and that in his providence he will guide and direct their life to his proper and already destined end. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now that's got to be a great sense of assurance to you. God's working in my life and he's not going to quit. No matter what I do, he's going to stay with me. He's going to persevere with me. God does not save you and then desert you to your own means. He gives you a new heart and a new spirit and places his Holy Spirit in you to guide you through this life. Part of his guidance will lead you through hard times and times of suffering. Those hard times and the suffering are a part of the molding process he's brought you into when he gave you the new heart. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Here's the purpose to which he refers as expressed by William Hendrickson. We know that to those who love God and do so because of God's work in them, as determined by his sovereign elective purpose, all things work together for good. What this explains is what Peter has consistently spoken about. Human responsibility is always operative in the salvation process. In other words, you have duties incumbent on you as a believer. Carrying out these duties is only possible because of God's grace, continuing to work in the hearts of believers, giving to him all the glory. To suffer because you have done evil is not anything to brag about. To suffer because you have done good is something from which to draw assurance of your hope in Jesus Christ. Peter says in verse 17, it is better. The reason it's better is because it shows God's loving watch care of you. It shows his work in your life molding you more and more into the image of his son. It shows the purpose of his electing love, drawing you into his kingdom, making you, as one of his children, giving you a great and marvelous inheritance. Why do good people sometimes suffer? First, let's be clear. There are no good people. We have all, every one of us, fallen short of the glory of God and deserve all the suffering that comes with it. Then the question might be better asked, why does God allow his children to suffer? They suffer because their Lord suffered. He suffered in bringing them deliverance from their sin. Peter addresses this in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to you, try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Peter, he continually reminds you that you are to imitate Jesus Christ. That means you must participate in the same types of suffering that he endured. Christ suffered greatly in his life. Unbelievably. 
It is from his life that we get this doctrine of suffering. And this is to be our guide in handling the suffering we encounter. As a believer, you will suffer. Instead of looking at this suffering as something you don't deserve, you should see it as an opportunity. An opportunity to better represent Christ Jesus to a lost and dying world. Now please understand, and I don't say this flippantly at all, I know it will be a very hard commitment to make to commit your life to following God's will. But it is the right commitment to make. Why? Because it's the same commitment Jesus Christ made as he came into this world to live the perfect life, die the atoning death, and win the resurrection victory for his people, for you. He did that for you if you believe and trust in Christ. For each one who makes this commitment, for all who face the sufferings that come with it, God promises. He promises he will encourage them, build up their confidence, and then give them greater and greater assurance of his love in their lives. This is the doctrine of suffering. That all who believe and trust in Christ Jesus will commit themselves to being witnesses for Christ in whatever situation they're placed. Open your hearts and hear. Open your souls to stand fast in your love for Christ Jesus and imitate him. Imitate him in your life, in your suffering, in your rejoicing, and in witnessing for this is his will for you. Turn to Jesus Christ in your life. Look to him and to him alone. For he and he only is the way unto salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with our hearts overflowing with excitement because your words are in our ears. You are our God. You are light. In you there is no darkness at all. We have seen your light, and through it we can escape the darkness. You have promised that as we walk in the light, you will be there with us, and you will have fellowship with us. We will be able to have fellowship with one another, and the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, will purify us from all sins. What a glorious promise you have given us. Now, help us to stay true to this promise and to walk in the light. In Christ's name, amen. You would take your hymnals.